Hello, everyone. Welcome to Upsize Your Leadership, the podcast about enhancing your effectiveness wherever you lead, whatever your role. Thanks for joining us today. My name is Mike Armour, Managing Principal of Strategic Leadership Development International, which I founded in Dallas in 2001. Since then, I have coached over 800 managers, executives, and entrepreneurs and have trained thousands more on four continents. You can learn more about me, my company, and the services which we offer at leaderperfect.com. Last month, I interviewed fellow podcaster Jeremy Ryan Slate on his recent book, From Unremarkable to Extraordinary. The book was gleaned from the hundreds of interviews on his podcast, Create Your Own Life, where he interviews highly successful people from all walks of life to identify the factors behind their achievement. In 2019, Inc. Magazine named his show the number one podcast to listen to. And last year, Podcast Magazine listed his podcast as one of the top 40 produced by people under 40. And BuzzFeed named him the Millennial Influencer to Follow in 2018. From these interviews with guests who have included a former CIA director, a three-time Indy 500 winner, Super Bowl champions, and top industry CEOs, he identified a dozen traits which are common to these successful people. These traits then form the crux of his new book. You'll learn more about that today. Based on what he learned in building such a successful podcast, he and his wife, Brielle, started a new media public relations agency called Command Your Own Brand. It's designed to help entrepreneurs share their message by appearing on high-profile podcasts. My interview with him was totally delightful, and I'm eager to share it with you and help you upsize your leadership. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. I'm visiting today with uh, Jeremy Ryan Slate, primarily about his recent insightful book, Unremarkable to Extraordinary. But we will be discussing the book against the backdrop of his podcast, Create Your Own Life, one of the most highly ranked podcasts in the industry. Welcome to Upsize Your Leadership, Jeremy. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Dr. Mike, thank you so much for having me today. I'm, I'm, I'm really honored to uh, get a chance to hang out with you. Well, the honor is mine. As I said a moment ago, I want to talk primarily about your excellent book and let you highlight some of the tremendous principles in it. But first, tell us a little about your podcast, Create Your Own Life. What led you to select that name and what was your motivation for starting a podcast on that theme? 
angst. That's all I can say. <laughs> I I had been through a lot of different because my my master's degree is in early Roman Roman Empire propaganda, like not a very applicable skill in the world of getting a job. So I actually was teaching in a private school, which you don't make a lot of money. You don't need a teaching degree to do. So I wasn't really prepared for that job. I very quickly burned out and I was trying a lot of different things to see what would work for me. I did network marketing. I sold life insurance. I sold products on Amazon. I built websites. I did in-home personal training. I did just, just about everything you think you could do. And I was having this conversation with my dad and he's like, well, you know, son, you work at a place for 40 years and you get to have fun after you retire. And I'm like, well, that doesn't make any sense. I, I want to create my own life, dad. And that was kind of where the, the title came from. It was more out of angst of like, I'm trying to do this thing the way like I was taught I'm supposed to do this thing. And I'm not very happy doing this thing. You, you know what I mean? Okay. Okay. And when you started it, who did you think your listenership would be? Me. It was, it was, it, I, it, it's people always ask me like, oh, like, how did you define your audience? How did you define this? Like, I'm the worst person to ask that of because okay. literally like I broke every rule and like what you're supposed to do in like marketing of starting a product like this. And for me, it was just like, you know, if I was teaching someone like myself and I was teaching them from someone else, right? Because I didn't have the data. I wanted to get it from people that had the data. And that's why I sure. do interviews. So who would I want to learn from and how would I want to learn from them? So that's really where the, the idea of the podcast has come. And it's, I think why it's over the years, there's been inflections and changes and growth and things like that. Because at the same time, like I started this podcast when I was like 24 years old and I'm, I'm, I'm 36 now. So it's like at the same time, like my life and what matters to me and things like that are very different as well. So I think I was the original audience, but at the same time, I've kind of grown and that's also changed how the show has grown. Okay. And since the podcast basically fed into the book, explain the connection between the two to our audience that doesn't know that background. So I've had at this point, I think we're at closing in on 1200 episodes of the show back when I started it in 2014. So I've had a lot of conversations in that period of time. You know, the wild thing about it, Dr. Mike, is I found that the same topics came up again and again and again and again. And I don't mean like, hey, we're talking about this today. I mean, when we talk about people's life stories, they, mm -hmm. they would all do the same things unknowingly. Mm -hmm. And when I looked at it, they were really probably could have been more, but I summed it down to 12 things that I saw every single one of these people was doing, were doing in a different way. And it was, it was very, very interesting to me. And the original idea of what I was going to do with it is I looked at it and I think adversity is an incredible thing in how we channel it. And the book was originally going to be about adversity. But when I really dove into it, I'm like, it's so much more than that. There, there's so much more to life and success and really making things happen than that. Because I, I'll be honest with you, I'm somebody that hates personal development books because I think they prey on people's dreams. And I think many times there's not enough doingness in them. So for me, I wanted to create something that would give people something they can apply from the lives of others that have successfully done those things. So it's like, okay, this is exactly how this person did it. This is what it looked like in implementation. And this is what you can do as well. You know, I just hate things that are airy fairy and you can do it. Just, you know, think about it three times a day and it's going to happen for you. Like 95% of, of what you get done is the action you take. And just thinking about things the right way is important, but it's not going to, it's not going to take the place of action. So that's what I, what I really want to put together. Great. Great. In the book, you provide an extended description of how it came about. Uh, you wrote the first uh, edition, then decided it really didn't resonate with readers the way you wanted it to. So you went back and did a complete overhaul on it. I, 
I really related to that part of the book because that's exactly what happened with my first book on leadership 25 years ago. Although we went to press with it and published it and sold several hundred of them. Oh, wow. But every time I would teach it in a seminar, I would think this isn't what I really should be doing. So we did a 60% overhaul of it and republished it about five years later. So I resonated with that. Do it once and then do it again and get it, get it right maybe the second time. But while you detail in the book how it came together, I'm always interested in why books get written. What is the impetus which leads people to write a particular book, the why? So in your case, what prompted you to write it? Well, what originally prompted me to write it is like, you know, like, hey, I'm going to help people create their own life, right? And then I was like, okay, that, that's cool, but that's not necessarily very much different than what anybody else is doing. And at the same time, like, I don't know how to say this, man. Like, I'm, I'm a realist and I'm very much, um, I'm pretty aggressive in life. And like, if you read the original book, you're like, wow, this guy sounds like he walks on sunshine and there's clouds following him around. And when I looked at him, like, wow, this is just, like, this is not me at all. And this is not how I live my life at all. And then the, the, the thing that actually really changed it, and I, just, I don't know if you, you noticed in the, in the introduction, there's kind of a, a, a list of the things that are kind of my core tenets and kind mm-hmm. of what matter right. to me. Right. So what happened was I scrapped the entire book. And um, I think I mentioned this in the book, my good friend, David Breyer had said to me, you know, well, what do you really believe in, man? What really matters to you? And when I sat down and really wrote about it, I was like, man, this is, it's not different, but the lens is very different that you see it through. So for me, I started lifting out, listing out what matters to me. Well, you know, I don't think anybody should be told their business is not essential because world events change. We need to find out how to be more flexible. Um, I don't think, um, you know, we put too much attention on drugging people rather than figuring them how to help sol- solve their problems, right? I, I think we per- we put too much attention on participation trophies rather than like, you know, it's okay to lose as long as you win from that and don't lose again, right? Like, I, I think there, there's a lot of emphasis put on the wrong things in society where if you change kind of the way you're operating in the goalposts and also the learning points, you can do so much from it. So for me, it started with that. And I'm like, okay, given this new insight, what are the things people need to learn to actually be able to do that? And that for me was the major turning point of, of looking what was going to happen because I could have written just another personal development book and it wouldn't have justified number one, who I am, but number two, I don't think it would have helped very many people. And the, the feedback we've gotten from this book has been incredible. And, that, and that's really what I've been hoping to do. And I think one of the reasons you probably have received that feedback, at least in part, is because you do spell out your orchestrating values there in the introduction. Uh, I began my executive coaching firm in 2001, just as the high-tech industry was in a lot of chaos, a lot of new technologies coming on. And I was working with a lot of high-tech companies that were struggling to come up with a vision for the future. Because by the time they got it written, new breakthroughs and new, uh, new technology had suddenly made it irrelevant. And yes. that was when I began to discover that if you can define your orchestrating values very clearly and very reflectively, you'll get about 80% of the bang if you stay true to those values that you get from a well-articulated vision statement. So my starting place with every company I, I work with, and I just started with one uh, Wednesday this week, we start off by talking about orchestrating values, not vision. We may get to vision eventually. I, I believe in vision statements. I just don't believe it's the starting point any longer for defining our future. 
Well, you know what's interesting, Mike, is I, I find that, and you've probably seen this in all of your you know, experience in working with companies. I find that what you initially think are your core tenants, you live a little life, you build a business, you do a lot of different things, and you kind of have this reality check of what it actually takes, right? So those core tenants, you know, they may grow and they may evolve, right? And I think for a lot of people, they think, okay, you define this thing and you build a thing around it. When a lot of times it's going to be messy, it's going to be ugly, it's going to require a lot of work. And you're going to find things that you thought you postulated and you thought were true through actual work may not actually be true. That's why I'm a big believer in life experience and hard work. And a lot of times you can take that hard work and what you've learned from it. And that's where you put your tenants on. Like, I, I don't know if you've seen that from, from the, your work. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, in, in fact, what I do is I break values into three categories, what I call core values, strategic values, and operational values. Those core values, and you've got some in your list, they're not going to change no matter what you do. Right. They are, they are who you are. Sure. And, and that's going to stay firm. But those strategic values and operational values, as you say, we have to be flexible with those and know when to revise them, when to replace them. So yes. I, I'm in complete agreement with you there. You use the title or the word extraordinary in the cap, uh, title. I've known very few books that had that word in the, uh, in the title. I work with a lot of people who I would describe as exceptional. Mm-hmm. How would you distinguish between someone who is exceptional at what they do and someone who is extraordinary. I, w- I want our reader, uh, our listeners to understand what they're going to be reading about when uh, they come to your description of the e- extraordinary life. So actually, I don't know if there's a distinction to be made because the, the idea that I came up with when I originally put the title together, it was, you know, extraordinary itself is, is one word, right? But when mm-hmm. I put it together, it was always two words from yeah. the perspective of we're all ordinary. But it's mm-hmm. the things we do, we implement, and how we win that make us extraordinary. And okay. that's why even on the cover, it's, you know, both words are, are, are the word is actually split into two lines. Mm-hmm. Because I think about it, like, we're all ordinary. You know, maybe we're born a little bit better than others because maybe we have some skills or we have, you know, maybe our family is more well off, whatever it may be. But we're all except, we're, we're all essentially ordinary people. It's what we do. It's what we learn. It's what we implement. It's. Um, you know, how quickly we can learn from what happens and implement, that's what makes us extraordinary. So mm-hmm. the, the, the viewpoint to me isn't, isn't really, we're looking at, okay, what's the difference between exceptional and extraordinary? I think we're just looking at like, what takes someone from ordinary to extraordinary? Do you get what I'm saying? Like what takes them be more than, than, than a regular person? Because a lot of people, you know, they'll, they'll go through life, they'll have a pretty normal life, they'll have a couple kids and, you know, they'll always kind of be close to debt and just kind of making it. But you look at somebody that like, how can I be extraordinary? How can I have a bigger impact? How can I help other people? How can I create a vision that's bigger than myself? That's extraordinary. That's more than ordinary. Okay. It struck me that you devoted the first chapter of the book to courage. One of the reasons that stands out to me is that my primary thrust is training and coaching in the field of leadership, writing in that field. And in keynotes and workshops, when I'm talking about the traits of good leaders, I always say the one non-negotiable is courage. Mm-hmm. Um, but there have been leaders in history who were not very good from a standpoint of character or even competence. Yes. But every one of them had to have courage in order to 
impact the world as a leader. So share with us your rationale for putting courage at the lead in your book. Well, I think the thing you have to consider first is when you look at anything in your life, right? Thought always becomes before action. If I think, you know, if I'm going to move my arm, I have to think I'm going to move my arm, right? Like, but it happens in a millisecond, right? Like it's not like a, a long process. And when you look at it, it's the same way in when you're going to do something. You have to think, I can do it. I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to take responsibility for it and do it. And that's what, when we look at courage, that's what courage actually is. A lot of times people won't do something because of how other people feel about them, what will occur to them, what situation it's going to create. To, to actually like kind of ruffle some feathers and make some things happen, you have to say, okay, I understand the ramifications. I understand what could happen to me. I understand what could happen to others, but I need to do this thing or I need to make this thing happen. So in order to really do that, you have to have courage. You have to have the ability to walk into the face of, you know, sometimes just sometimes a little bit of mental, but sometimes often physical danger of what is mm-hmm. going to happen to you and what is and what could happen to you um, to, to risk it to actually get somewhere. You, you look at like, I think an excellent, uh, excellent example of lack of courage. You know, you, I know you're, you're a, hist- a military history guy, Neville Chamberlain, mm-hmm. terrible example of courage. The guy wanted to make other people happy. He wanted the world scene to look at him the right way. And so he appeased Adolf Hitler rather than making the right decision. You have to have courage to do what's right, even despite how other people may feel about it. And that's where courage comes first. Good, good. Well stated. One of the other traits that you you don't devote a chapter to, but you certainly highlight it and punctuate it, and that is the importance of humility and the stories of these successful people that you've interviewed and studied. In my latest book, Leadership and the Power of Trust, when I talk about the seven traits of highly trusted leaders, I lead with humility. And I think probably for some of the same reasons that, that you dealt with it, I know you're a a fan of George Washington. I don't yes. know this comment about him from Lord North after the Treaty of Paris was signed. But I don't. As, as the king was signing the Treaty of Paris, uh, ending the American Revolution, he looked up at the prime minister and said, uh, Lord North, what uh, will General Washington do now? And the prime minister's response was, I think he will go back to Virginia and become a farmer again. And the king's response was, if he does that, he is the most humble man on the planet. Mm-hmm. Because never before in history and never since has someone led a revolution to overthrow a government and then immediately stepped aside and gave authority to someone else. And so uh, we don't think of George Washington in terms of humility, but at least one monarch <laughs> recognized well, it, the man is very humble. <laughs> if you think about it, Dr. Mike, though, like that's also the reason that a lot of people called him the American Cincinnatus, right? Because you think right. of in, in Roman legend, there's this character and then he may or may not have existed, right? right? We don't know if this guy was even real. His name was Cincinnatus. And in uh, in Roman government, this is kind of before the empire, right? When we were, they were still right. a republic, there was this position called the dictator. And the dictator was someone for six months would have ultimate power to walk in, solve a situation and, you know, kind of leave power and do whatever. And Cincinnati, historically, you know, may not be a real guy once again, was the only one to actually have dictator power, handle the military thing that came up and then just go back to farming. Just like, you know, we're talking about with, with George Washington here. Right, right. Great, great. You devote a lot of emphasis in your book and having listened to some of your 
podcasts. I know you do this on podcasts too, to passion and the importance of pursuing passion. Elaborate on that a little bit for Mm -hmm. us, would you? Well, I think I want to make a differentiation here because I think there's this idea of, you know, and like I said, I'm, I'm closing in on 40, but I think my generation has kind of ruined the idea of, of following your passion and you'll never work a day in your life. And I, I just, I frankly don't think that concept is true. I think it's something we've been led to believe by internet marketing and things like that. The, the differentiation I want to make is between following your passion and finding your passion. Following your passion to me seems like it's more of a passive process. Like you're following something and hope you'll catch it, you know, and you'll, it'll one day maybe slow down enough that you can catch that rascally rabbit. Um, But when you're looking at um, finding your passion, to me, finding implies you're doing something, right? You're, you're looking, you're observing, you're trying. And, And to me, that's the difference because I think that the way our education system is set up, and this is funny, as I said, since I have a master's degree, I think it's set up not for application. It's set up for a lot of theory. And one of the biggest things missing is an idea of apprenticeships. I'm not talking about an internship. I mean, an apprenticeship where you decided you want a career, you work in that career for a little bit, and you either get some skills or you um, use that as a time to decide this is not what I want to do with my life. And in that, you're doing things. You're not afraid to screw up. You're not afraid to say this career isn't for me or this idea isn't for me, but hey, I've gained some skills. You know, I painted all through, I painted houses all through high school and college. It doesn't mean I want to be a house painter, but like if my wife ever wants a project done, she knows I'm the guy to do it for her. But like those teach you real world skills and you have to do a lot of things you don't like to find the things you do like. And I think that's what it comes down to because you need to be enjoying something, but that thing also needs to produce money or value in some way, because if it does not, you're not going to be able to do it very long. So to me, finding your passion is continually trying things to find the right thing for you that aligns with your ability to survive and produce something as well as be happy doing it. And I think that's what it really comes down to. And you just used a word there, enjoy. One of the themes that I've been pursuing for the last about a decade is the importance of discovering joy in the game uh, because the joy that we find protects us from a, a vulnerability we have as long as success is defined only in terms of what's out there in the future. Sure. So what if I am very competent, very capable pursuing this thing that is out there in the future, but I have a car accident and my life is cut short and I never get there? Was I a failure? My theory is that if I was finding joy in the game, I was successful. Yeah, I didn't have enough time to get to an ultimate goal I had. And so I want people to find the joy in the game because I think the joy in the game gives us some of the same outflow in terms of the energy, the creativity, the imagination, uh, the determination that we bring to our effort that your concept of passion does. Would you, what's your thought on that? I, I, I would think also there's a, a big spiritual element to that as well, though. Do, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? Like, because if you look at it, a lot of your viewpoint in the world and how you conduct yourself is also what you're going to create in your life, right? Um, you know, if you're somebody that you're miserable, you're not happy, you hate people. Well, first of all, don't be a public speaker if you hate people. Um, but like, you're going to create a lot of those things in your life. Um, and, you know, joy, all, you know, I've always used the acronym. Um, uh, you have Jesus, other people, and then yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're, you're really, in, you're really looking at 
spirituality and putting the, putting the right attention on the right things? Like, am I creating good things for others? Am I creating a good environment for others? Right. And you're going to find that if you're healthy in that way, things in your life are a lot easier. But I think often, you know, we're miserable. We want a pill. We want a solution. We want a whatever it may be. But we're not willing to do things to actually create happiness for ourselves. And, and I think because, you know, society has really taught us that, um, you know, we're, we're just kind of this physical body. There's not a spiritual element to us. So, so to me, I think for a lot of people, it's actually a very spiritual disconnect that's missing on why they can't find joy in anything they're doing. That's an excellent observation, and I would fully concur with it. As we move toward uh, wrapping this up, I've got some curiosity as an author myself. I know when I set out to write a book and have a clear concept, I think, of what I want to say, just the process of getting it clearly expressed on paper causes other ideas to start popping up that I had never considered before. Yes. And by the time the book is finished, there's a lot of content in it, even some models and metaphors that I had never even considered before. So I'm just wondering, in the course of writing this book, what things popped up? What were the new discoveries or the greater clarity that you got on something important? Well, I got a funny story for you before I, before I get, into, get into that part, talking about you know, books and their experience. Um, my first book... Um, I actually wrote when I was in grad school and there's only one university in the country that still uses it. Other than that, it doesn't sell very many copies. And it taught me a really big lesson. Um, it's called Gnaeus Pompeius Magnus and the Apotheosis of Augustus. I was taught, <laughs> don't title your book in Latin. No one will buy it. Um, <laughs> so that was a really big lesson I, I actually learned was, you know, if you're going to write something, write it plainly and write it to communicate because it's not actually going to help anybody if you don't intend to communicate. But, you know, going to this book, I think the thing that's interesting is writing a book itself is actually a really big personal development activity, right? Because it, it, you, it causes you to really look at things. So Because I was listening the other day, um, uh, Tucker Carlson was getting interviewed and he was talking about, um, you know, when, after he got off the air and everything um, and he kind of was just like, what do I do with my life? He actually started doing a show again, literally because the idea of preparing for a show and writing for a script mm -hmm. for a show helps him because it forces him to write out his ideas and defend them. That is exactly how I felt with this book. My ideas had to become richer. They had to become stronger and they had to be challenged because if I could not beat that challenge, then the ideas themselves may not be useful ideas, right? If you look at a piece of information, a piece of information is only as useful to you as you can apply it. And if you can't apply it or it's confusing, then it's not very useful. So to me, what I actually found is I started with way more concepts in this book and we ended up at 12 because I'm like, those other ones, I had to try and really flesh them out and they really weren't true when I looked at them at scale. So to me, that's what happens is you learn to defend your ideas better. You learn to work your ideas better. And I think you learn a lot more about them. Good. Your book really looks at the themes you explore through the eyes of two groups of people, entrepreneurs and sports figures, primarily. A lot of my clients are people who are in corporate roles and have no interest or desire to ever be, be entrepreneurial. And sure. at their age and their weight, they will never be a competitive athlete. <laughs> it's sort of like me. <laughs> They're people, people of my own flock. Uh, as uh, and, and some of them are there not just for the security of the corporate. I've got a, a client who has two PhDs, speaks three languages, 
my gosh, uh, besides English and has international experience, but is a researcher in an area of science where she wants to be working for a company that can give her the very latest cutting edge laboratory technology. There's no place else she can get that except the corporate world. So she's perfectly happy to spend her life there. Those are not really the kinds of people you're talking to, but for them, what does it mean to be extraordinary? Uh, they're not going to be successful business people. They're not going to be sure. all stars, most valuable players uh, on an athletic team. But what does it mean for them to be extraordinary? Well, to your, to your client that speaks three languages, um, I took Latin for 12 years, but no one else will speak it with me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I would, I, would, I would say, Dr. Mike, um, you know, really looking at that, I think when you're looking at it, there's extraordinary people in every walk of life because those people are looking to, to be better, to improve, to become the best, right? Like, you know, I don't care if you were somebody that is working at a restaurant. You know, if you can make that, an, uh, you, know, you know, like waiting tables, if you can make that an experience that enriches other people's lives and enriches their day and makes things better, you can be extraordinary at that. Mm -hmm. And that's what I, one of the things I really finished up with in this book is I think so often we want to define what extraordinary means for others, mm -hmm. but we can't because it's the barometer is so different. We have to define what does it mean for me to be it's the best like, I can? It, it's just like success, right? Like success, success isn't a is for you. Yeah. It's not a definitive thing, right? Like it's not yeah. because like you may think this is success and be like, I don't want to do that, dude. Like, but like when you look at it, we can't define what it has to be for others, but you can apply these tenets to become the best in that sphere. You know, like you can still lead other people within your organization so that you can create more impact. You can still learn to deal with adversity because I'll tell you right now, if a contract got canceled or if something happened, that's adversity. You need to figure out how to handle it. So I think there's so many different ways that this can still be applied because this book is this book isn't about handling business. This book is about handling life. Hmm. And if you look, if you can handle life, you can handle anything. Okay. So as we wrap up, tell our listeners how they can find the book and, and enjoy the benefit of it themselves. So if they want to grab the book, um, that's over at getextraordinarybook.com. And I actually put together a really awesome program for them that anybody heads over there and gets it. It's called, it's called 30 Days of Extraordinary. Um, and if you jump in, grab the book, come back with your receipt, we'll send you the program. And uh, that's over at getextraordinarybook.com. Okay, very good. Let me encourage uh, all of our listeners to uh, certainly consider taking him up on that offer. It is a well-thought-out book. If you enjoy great narratives about people who have done great things, uh, it's a, a great read just from that standpoint. But in the process, by osmosis, you're going to pick up a lot of axioms and principles that will make your life a lot richer. Jeremy, thanks for being with us today. This has been uh, just as enjoyable as I anticipated it would be. It's good to get to know you face-to-face -face after having enjoyed your podcast and uh, getting a chance lately to look through the book and see where your thinking took you in the development of that piece. I, I appreciate that very much and uh, look forward to continuing the relationship and perhaps visiting again sometime in this format. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Mike. I really enjoyed this. It was indeed a privilege. My thanks again to Jeremy Ryan Slate for his time with me, which he graciously agreed to reschedule to accommodate a calendar conflict which I developed with our original date. And thanks to you for joining us for this podcast.
Again, the name of Jeremy's book is From Unremarkable to Extraordinary. You'll find it on Amazon, and you'll find his podcast, Create Your Own Life, on iTunes, Spotify, and other major podcast platforms. I look forward to visiting with you next week. Until then, find some way every day to upsize your leadership. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.